Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, This week, IATP, the organization Grain, and the Heinrich Bull Foundation put out a fact sheet that for the first time did a comprehensive analysis of the greenhouse gases being emitted by large meat and dairy corporations. I'm joined by Shafali Sharma from IATP and Devlin Kuyek from Grain to talk about it. Uh, Shafali, you guys are at the climate conference in Bonn. Uh, tell us about what's been going on there the last couple of days and what, uh, who you've been connecting with and what your role is there. Um, sure. Um, well, uh, the Bonn conference just started uh, on Monday, and uh, so people are still just getting used to, uh, you know, the next two weeks um, of negotiations. But uh, the Germans organized, the German civil society organized a People's Climate Summit, and different civil society groups and social movements have uh, gathered here in Bonn. Um, we started out with a big demonstration on Saturday. Uh, with an image of Merkel, uh, you know, spewing out coal, uh, smoke from coal power plants. It was great. There was over 25,000 people there. Um, And it's exciting. We've been talking to a lot of groups that are gathered here, uh, NGOs, uh, farmers groups, uh, climate activists, about what our uh, fact sheet means. Uh, It's basically the first time that Uh, Anybody has tried to quantify the emissions from massive uh, meat producers like JBS, Tyson, Cargill, and dairy companies like Fonterra and Lactalis. And I think our fact sheets with our infographics makes it very clear their large carbon footprint. For instance, the top 20 emitters uh, emit even more than Germany does. Um, Devlin, do you want to add to this? Sure. Yeah, the companies themselves don't do this work. They don't uh, publish their emissions numbers. So we had to do it ourselves. Uh, and that meant looking through the most, I guess, advanced uh, metrics that are out there, which uh, the FAO has developed alongside the industry. So the industry is very much involved in developing the methodology with the FAO. And we use that and we use the uh, quantity numbers that we could get from the, um, from the companies themselves about how much meat and, uh, and dairy they produce. And then from there, we were able to figure out their emissions. So talk to me a bit about that methodology. What's included in that and how, how do you know that you're getting an accurate measure of the greenhouse gas emissions these companies are, are making? Well, well, from our side, it was very, fairly simple. I mean, we had to figure out the, the quantity, um, which for there, there are some industry sources about the, the amount of uh, meat and, and uh, milk that these companies process. Uh, so we did that for beef, pork, chicken, and uh, for dairy. And then we looked at the, uh, the FAO, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization's uh, GLEAM methodology, uh, which has been developed over, over the years. They have data that their most recent data is based on 2010 uh, uh, figures, and what they what those what the that methodology does is sort of give a regional breakdown uh, as to how much uh, uh, you know how many uh, tons of CO two equivalent are emitted with the production of say per, per kilo of, of poultry or or of beef, and we looked at that at a at a regional level. 
we also sort of with beef anyways we factored in uh you know how much uh in the various regions percentage would be of, of dairy cat, uh, dairy cows uh, as a source of beef or, or or beef cattle as a source of beef uh and we then looked at a br- breakdown of the production for each of these companies by region and then we quantified the uh the emissions and, and just to say on our on our on the websites of ITP and grain there will be uh, tables that provide um, details about uh, you know how those emissions were calculated. Uh, great. And so when we're talking about meat and dairy emissions, we're largely talking about methane, right? And I think um, you know for for the lay audience, you know we've heard about right cow farts, right, which is sort of this uh, very um, inaccurate way of characterizing the emissions that meat and dairy companies are making, but it kind of makes people chuckle and is, is widely known. But, but what we're really talking about here is the corporate process of production, uh, confined animal feeding operations, and uh, the, the entire supply chain. So can you talk a bit more about what it is that they're actually emitting and uh, some of the ways in which that's being emitted? Sure, that's that's a really important point, uh, Josh. They, they, this glean methodology doesn't just look at, uh, as you said, uh, you know, cow burps or farts. It's it's looking at everything that happens right from the production of feed uh, to the you know the energy that's used on the, on the farms and the runs these barns and the you know the, all the fertilizer uh, that gets used. Um, so the the and it goes all the way to the the retail point. So it's, you know, it's, it's quite comprehensive, includes the processing, everything. So those, are, those emissions, as you say, are not just about the, the, this, uh, uh, what was it, what's typically reported on in cow burps and farts, but it's, it's all about the, the whole industrial system. And I think that's why these emissions numbers are, are as high as they are. And, and just to touch on, so can you, because I think people just don't know this, like what, Methane is a, I don't know what the best word is, like more intensive greenhouse gas than carbon. Um, can you just explain a little bit, like some of the very basic science of how the, what the emissions actually are? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much a layperson on this stuff too, so I'll, okay. I'll try as best I can. But it's uh, the, the difference between uh, methane and, um, and carbon uh, dioxide is that uh, methane is a much more volatile uh, gas and it has a shorter lifetime. Uh, so its its emissions are, are very important, say, over the next, especially when you consider over the next uh, 20 years, 30 years, whereas carbon, you're, you're looking, carbon dioxide, you're looking at a sort of longer, longer time frame. Um, so it, it it, it it leaves our atmosphere more quickly, but it, it the damage it, it causes is 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 much more is much more rapid. Um. So, what are you um what are you doing with this fact sheet at the climate conference? Yeah. Well, um, the Guardian actually just now published our op-ed um, that was done by Juliet Majot, our executive director in Devlin, and. Uh, the title of this op-ed is Big Meat and Big Dairy's Climate Emissions Put ExxonMobil to Shame. So one of the things that we're doing, obviously, is uh, media outreach. And we have already been contacted by Brazilian um, journalists who are obviously very interested. 
Um, it's been interesting because when we ask folks in a room, uh, very smart folks, if they've ever heard of JBS, they say very few people raise their hands. And that's ironic in a year where JBS has been so much in the media spotlight. Uh, JBS is not only the largest um, by far, I mean, it uh, kind of blows number two Tyson and number three Cargill away in terms of how much meat it processes and transports around the world. It's also the largest emitter. In fact, it, um, you know, it emits 280 megatons. And compared to that, uh, Exxon emits 577. So nearly half of what Exxon emits is what JBS emits. And people don't understand that. People don't know the significance of this. And this is what we've been communicating with the groups that are gathered here. And it's led to some very interesting um, talks. And in fact, you know, we had embargoed this fact sheet so uh, until The Guardian published, which they just published, in fact. So as I'm speaking with you, we're going live um, on our websites finally, and reporters can have access to our data and our data sets. And uh, so it's, it's, and people have been very interested in, you know, saying, when can we circulate this? When can we, um, you know, get this out there? And can we get this to governments? And by all means, yes, we want governments to have this. We want uh, the media to understand this. And we've also had a very interesting conversation actually this afternoon with pastoralist groups and social movements uh, that are supporting food sovereignty, for instance, um, via Campesina uh, members who have said, you know, one of the biggest problems by singling out these corporations is that they control the meat and dairy sector. And so many, many small producers are tied into or trapped rather into a contractual relationship with them or in a relationship where they uh, wield tremendous amount of buyer power and set the prices for farmers, which is why farmers are consistently um, earning below their cost of production. And so one of the things that we will be doing is producing a much more in-depth report. These are preliminary numbers. So this is kind of a, a pre-release of our data because we wanted the world to know that's gathered here at the COP about the, you know, the CO2 equivalent carbon footprint that these uh, companies have on the planet. Um, but uh, in 2018, in the spring, we hope to come out with a much more in-depth report that talks about um, this industry versus the broader livestock sector and the role that smallholders and pastoralists play in, um, you know, environmental uh, protection and regeneration of biodiversity in um, creating local markets uh, and uh, making sure that, you know, we don't give rise to pandemics that are created through mass uh, confinement. Uh, a lot of diseases like, you know, bird flu and so many diseases that the pork sector has gone through uh, in the past few years that has devastated farmers in the United States. So um, we're excited about it. And um, we think that uh, this will create a big debate. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that the fact sheet says is that there's no way we can effectively reach the 1.5 degree target without regulating the industry. And you talked about some of the ways in which small scale farmers can be actually be working to um, mitigate um, uh, climate change. Um, but 
what are some immediate regulations that could happen on the corporate meat and dairy sectors that might make a change? Well, I think one of the clearest things that could happen is taking public money away from the corporations themselves. We talk a lot about taking subsidies out of the fossil fuel industry, and I think we need to get subsidies out of um, you know, supporting these corporations. Uh, having said that, a lot of blame for agricultural subsidies goes to producers, and, and IATP has always maintained that uh, you have to look at the system. If you have very few buyers, as we do in the States, where four companies control you know, beef processing and pork processing, then basically the producer has no choice. And so the fact that you're supporting producers because these companies are paying them below the cost of production um, is absolutely nonsensical. What you need to do is penalize these companies <laughs> and regulate them and ensure that farmers get, uh, you know, make their, uh, at least make what they, uh, the, make up the cost that they've spent in producing, but also are able to make a living off of it. And there's such a big movement now in local markets and, uh, and, and local food. And I think that we need to move towards that. So it's about, you know, redirecting public funds, reinvesting in, in, in local foods, and uh, regulating, regulating uh, the nitrogen and the methane that comes out uh, from their operations, regulating the public health risks that are there, and um, basically uh, stopping the, the free trade model that is supported and perpetuated by these corporations uh, that basically increases their markets uh, in other countries and floods them with cheap, cheap meat um, and uh, helps governments deregulate and prevents them from actually regulating them. And that's what uh, we're asking for a new model. We're asking for uh, a trade policy that uh, supports uh, social justice and environmental justice. One of the biggest conclusions is that we all need to, especially us in the United States and the European Union, need to uh, really think about the overconsumption that we have. Our per capita meat consumption is way beyond any, um, you know, recommended World Health Organization, uh, you know, uh, uh, guidelines for what is a healthy uh, amount of meat and dairy to be had. And so uh, there's no way that we can continue on this path uh, with the consumption levels that we have. Well, Devlin Kuyek and Shafali Sharma, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, now for the second part of the podcast, I'm joined by IATP's Executive Director, Juliet Michaud, who authored uh, the op-ed in The Guardian along with Devlin. Uh, Juliet, in the op-ed, uh, one of the things that they talk about is, or that you talk about, is how uh, the big meat and dairy companies will say they're feeding the world and they're actually working towards sustainability. But our findings pretty clearly show that that's not true. Can you talk about that to start us off? Sure. I think that in some ways, I think when people say they're feeding the world, they're, it's kind of aspirational thinking, rather grandiose thinking. I mean, we know from from data that, that most people are actually fed, 60%, 60 to 70% of people uh, have food that is coming from 
small farms, local farms, this is worldwide. Remember when they say we're feeding the world, in the American context, that, that kind of contributes to this kind of picture of, of the, the U.S. and the wheat and the dairy feeding everyone overseas. This is a very antiquated, very old-fashioned idea about how people are fed, um, who's farming the food that actually feeds people, um, how, that, how that food is moved. When we look at large-scale agribusiness, when we look at factory farming of meat, um, what we're doing is feeding a market. What we're doing is feeding, uh, or what large-scale agribusiness is doing, is, is using the idea that we're feeding the world to continue to increase a market that doesn't need to be increased for anybody really but themselves. Which is what's leading uh, massive overproduction of a lot of crops in the United States and around the world. Uh, that overproduction forces the price down and ultimately farmers lose out. Um, the recommendations from the, the paper in the op-ed or the infographic in the op-ed is that we need to reinvest in uh, more agroecological practices like we talked about last week on the, the podcast. Um, talk about how do we build uh, awareness and political will for making that transition? I think the key word in that question is transition. Um, there seems to be an idea, a very important idea, a very bad idea out in the world that you can just change things overnight, that you can simply say, well, we're not going to use this system anymore. We're going to use that system. And we all know that that is not how it works. There are farmers uh, all over the world, a lot of them in the United States, who are trying to transition from one way of farming to another way of farming. Uh, and that has to do not just with how they do their practices on their farm, but what kinds of structural elements in the U.S. economy, in the U.S. regulatory system, in the policy system, actually can, can help them in that transition. If, for instance, you want to move to organic farming, that does not come without a price. It's costly for a farmer, and a farmer needs to have support to be able to do that. I think more importantly, there are structural changes that need to happen that support a kind of transition. A farmer can't just on their own say, well, I'm going to change the way I work. They have to pay attention to how they move their produce, how they move their food. Is there a distribution network for it? Is there a distribution channel for it? Is there a market for it that they can depend on so that they don't have to deal with high levels of, of price volatility? All of these things uh, can be approached from multiple different angles. We talk a lot about one example as being um, in the areas of procurement policies and in the areas of um, and such as farm to institution work, where a farmer can get a guaranteed market locally for their produce. They can charge prices that are reasonable. There needs to be support sometimes so that places with low budgets like school systems and, and even some hospitals can afford to pay for that produce. It works in a, in a, in a system and one part of it affects another part of it. So while we look for super simple answers on um, how this happens, uh, we have to look at many, many different parts of, of, uh, of a system that itself is made up of many, many um, subsystems. So we're a couple of days out from having this op-ed published. 
and we've gotten some press. There's been a lot of feedback on social media, um, a lot of people sharing the article. I think we've had over 3,500 3, people share the op-ed that was in The Guardian. Mm -hmm. um, what does that tell you about um, the, the public will and the amount of attention that's, uh, that this issue of livestock driving climate change uh, has and what, what have you learned in the last couple of days? I've learned a lot in the, in the, in the last couple of days. We knew that this information, that these findings about the incredible, um, the, the incredible scale of GHG emissions um, that come from large scale factory farming, dairy and livestock, we knew that it was going to capture the imagination of the public because uh, for so many people, the numbers are surprising. Um, what, I, what I learned that I, I am extremely happy about um, has to do with something that we didn't do a good enough job of in, in our work, in our initial work, uh, in our initial releases, which is that a lot of people came back and said, where's the data? Where's the data? Um, how, how did you come to these findings? And I think that that, I am very, uh, um, I'm very happy to see people asking that question. It tells me that people take this extremely seriously, that they want to see the data, which we have and which we're, we are producing. There's a lot of it. We're confident in our findings. And I think we should have been more confident in our audience to know that they wanted to see some of that right away as well. Um, this is a very, this is very heartening to me. Um, I, I've learned that um, that the audience that, that the, in, the, in the comments and the questions that we've um, been fielding, and I hope we will continue to field, a lot of really excellent questions um, of people saying, we don't, we don't, we don't know why um, the greenhouse gas emissions from a small um, livestock holder would be any different from the emissions coming from a mega factory farm. Um, and we can explain why that is, and we can explain um, why it is that some gases like methane have such a, a, a bigger impact um, than CO2. We can explain what happens when you concentrate waste. We can explain what happens when you concentrate, um, uh, when you take over land in order to have more grain, in order to feed more cattle. So I think, you know, I think that, um, uh, what the biggest thing that I've learned is that people are curious. They will take a point and ask more questions about it. And that is extremely heartening. Well, Juliet, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you, Josh. You've been listening to Uprooted. I'm Josh Wise. For more information about what you've heard today, including to view the infographic, uh, the Guardian op-ed, and the data set from which we made our calculations, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. Thanks for listening.